uh, Neil introduces me as a guest speaker. Thank you, Neil. I appreciate that. <laughs> if you guys know of a, a church that needs a good pastor, Neil is uh, available. And so, uh, <laughs> no, I'm teasing. Uh, I had an amazing time away. Appreciate those of you who prayed. Uh, you know, this is new for me to, uh, I did it last summer and this summer to concentrate my time away in uh, a few months, or a few weeks, few months, we- few weeks in the summer. And it was uh, probably the best time of connection that Kim and I have ever had with uh, our extended family. And that's really meaningful for us because, you know, when we came here almost eight years ago, uh, we traveled 2,200 miles away from her folks, my folks, her brothers, my brother and sister, and, and all of our extended family. And, you know, it was hard for them and, and hard for us. And my parents are uh, aging fast, and so are hers, and so they don't travel as well. And so it's important for us to go to them. And uh, out of the few weeks that we were away, we actually, <laughs> only I would quantify it this way, but we spent uh, 84% of our time with extended family uh, while we were there. And it was super, super, super meaningful for Kim and I. So um, I appreciate you all allowing me to do that. Uh, Every Sunday, just about every Sunday or Saturday night, I would dial in on the internet from where I was in the Midwest and uh, hear our speaker. And I got to tell you, you guys are are well served as I knew you would be from Rustin to Daryl to Tim Kimmel. And how about Lucas, huh? I mean, just a fantastic job uh, the last two weeks. Uh, I don't know what's up with that ridiculous haircut that he has, but other than that, I thought he did a fantastic job, and I even texted him and said, you know, um, I rate speakers a lot, you know, good, bad, fair, whatever. I said, I don't even want to rate you. You just inspired me. You inspired me to draw closer to Jesus, and uh, I, I thank you for that. So uh, I, I'm grateful. We'll be evaluating this fall, uh, you know, for next year. I was working on the 2016 preaching calendar while I was gone, and we're getting that set now, and we'll be inviting speakers for next year. And so uh, any input you guys give us is always helpful there. The only one you cannot get rid of is Daryl, so don't even try. And uh, he's, our, he's our pastor emeritus, and he's on the docket. So, uh, But everybody else will be evaluating whether we're going to bring them back or not, maybe even try to bring in some uh, new people. Uh, this fall, we have uh, not for a while. I'm on for 10 Sundays in a row, but who's counting? And uh, this fall, we have uh, one guest speaker, all of you are going to love, that we are inviting back for the third time in October, and it's Dr. O.S. Hawkins. And O.S. has just been, yeah, he's, he's been so highly received here in our church, uh, and so uh, he's agreed to come back and be with us, and I think you guys are going to be blessed by that. But that's not what we're going to do today. Uh, what we're going to do today is continue in our study of the Gospel of John. And and, and as I was away, I got even more clarity in my study on John. And and what hit me is probably the best way for you all to understand where we're going in 2015, and then even into really 2016, uh, is the four movements of the Gospel of John. And and so this is really helpful. Uh, John goes from belief in Jesus to doubt of Jesus to let's follow Jesus to let's learn to love Jesus and each other. Uh, The first four chapters is what we just finished in John, and that's that uh, Jesus is now on the scene. Everybody's excited. He does a miracle at Cana. He interacts with Nicodemus. He's with the woman at the well, and, and it's all about belief. It's all about the fact that he's on the scene. He's the son of God. He's God come for you to die for your sins. Believe. 
But as we turn the page into chapter 5 today, you're going to see that it begins two long chapters of serious doubt. The Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes will lead the crowds in doubting the very nature of Jesus. And so we're going to look at seven things over the next couple of months here at our church that become seeds of doubt, things that cause us to doubt God in our lives. Uh, but then Jesus comes right back at him in chapters 7 through 11. I mean, just like Jesus, he says, all right, uh, for those of you who are doubting, let's turn up the heat. What about following? You say you believe, you've gone through some doubts, now let's follow God, let's follow Jesus, and we're going to take a look at that uh, early next year. And then chapter 12 is the hymns chapter, and chapters 13 through 21, the second half of John, are all about love. It begins at the Last Supper where Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, love one another just as I have loved you. And out of the 50 times that all the variations of the word love appear in John, 80% of them appear in the latter half of John. Isn't that interesting? Jesus is trying to bring something home to us. And so this is the journey that we're going to take with other series filled in in between. And so it's not a, a linear journey. But today we're in the second half. And I think you're going to like this, this idea of doubt. And to set the tone for this today, even before I pray, we have prepared a very special my story to get you thinking about the topic before us today, the first killer of faith that leads to doubt. We're going to call it legalism. And Sunamita Taylor is the wife of Matthew, who is our worship leader at Mountain Valley Campus. And Sunamita has a very real and raw story. She's in the midst of it right now with her journey with the Lord. And we want you to hear a bit about it. So look up here on the screen, then we'll pray. I went to a Romanian church pretty much all my life. <laughs> Surrounded and immersed like in the language and the culture. My mom was in the choir, so we'd sing. And that's kind of like how I learned Romanian. We'd sing a lot of Romanian songs. Women would cover their heads, wear skirts, kind of a strict lifestyle. And I guess I grew up with the notion of knowing how to be for God the standard of what it means to be saved. And I'd be so distraught, because every time I'd fail, I'd, I'd be like, man, I said this, or I thought like that. And I'd miss my mark. I'd miss the mark that I was supposed to hit. Um, I'm supposed to look different because Jesus was different. I didn't realize that Jesus was different because of the way he loved. Matt and I met at a Bible study um, he was leading. I found out that Matthew sang and played guitar, and I was like, I would love it for you to come lead worship at my church, but can you do it in Romanian? <laughs> and so, so sure enough, you know, um, he started practicing, and there was always this thing, he'd always talk about grace and like freedom in the spirit. We would get in these arguments, and I'd be like, well, if we love Jesus so much, then we should do this for him, and this whole grace thing, this whole freedom thing, it doesn't work. And then I, I heard a sermon, um, it was called Embrace Grace, and the pastor said, you're not a child by worth, you're a child by birth. I understand that so much better now, you know, we're expecting and, and super excited to have Annabelle uh, this August, but there was something I had to do for Jesus to love me that much. Jesus couldn't love me in all my sin and all my, my imperfections. So it was, yeah, Jesus, I accept you, but Jesus accepted me that he chose me when he died on the cross for me, you know, and the moment I accepted him, it was like that. I just wish I would have realized that. Um, I think life would have been a lot less lonesome. I was so lonely growing up. Matt and I came to Scottsdale Bible Church, and it was one of the most incredible things I had ever 
felt or seen in my life. You know, these people were getting baptized and, and coming out of the water like, like they'd won a marathon. <laughs> like, people were clapping in worship and some people were jumping and I just remember thinking like, wow, I'm home. <laughs> I finally fit in here. Jesus is with me always. And even when I'm weak, even when I fail him, he's there and he's interceding for me. And, and now when I look in the mirror, I don't, I don't see someone that just can't get anything right in life. You know, I see his love for me and I see it chasing after me. My name is Sunamita Taylor and this is my story. Would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, many of the my stories that we show are about external circumstances affecting our lives. What I love about Sunamita's story is that it's all about what we call the interior life, her journey with you in those tender, very real places that many of us don't talk about, let alone process in our lives, but you do. And so, God, I pray that as we bounce off of her journey, that she's right in the midst of still this awakening of grace and, and learning about legalism and how it can lead to so much disillusionment in her life. God, I pray you'd help the rest of us make sense of that as we learn from Jesus here today. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the early silent films to ever be produced almost 100 years ago when moving pictures were invented uh, was about the life of Jesus. It was called The King of Kings, and it came out in 1927. It was directed by Cecil B. DeMille, and he cast the British-born actor H.B. Warner in the role of Jesus. Here's a clip from the movie at the Last Supper, uh, and it kind of looks like a silent movie, doesn't it? I mean, Jesus looks like a zombie in this uh, picture here, but that's how they did silent pictures back then where they put a lot of makeup on you and, and tried to let the image of you uh, portray more than anything else. And it's an interesting story during the filming of The King of Kings. DeMille was rabid that Warner's personal and public life would not tarnish the film or its success. He wanted to make sure that the guy who played Jesus would live up to the image. And so as a result of this, DeMille enforced strict measures on H.B. Warner to ensure that he kept up a Jesus image in this film and even after. So for instance, he made him sign an agreement that for five years after this film, he wouldn't accept any other film unless approved by DeMille that would keep his image of Jesus going and growing. Even more so, during the filming, Warner was driven to the set with the blinds drawn on his car and then delivered to the set with a black veil over his face. During the times when they were film, not filming, he was separated from all other cast members. He had to eat every meal alone every day. And during the off hours, uh, he was forbidden from playing cards, going to ball games, riding a in a convertible, or going swimming. Uh, literally dozens of regulations and rules were imposed upon Warner by DeMille, all for the purpose of keeping up the holy image of Jesus. And as some of you who are more veteran Christians might have imagined, it didn't work. In fact, it backfired. This regimen of rules and regulations didn't make Warner more holy. Instead, all the pressure to be more Christ-like in this outwardly focused way drove Warner over the edge. And during the production of the movie, he relapsed back into alcoholism. So, so now you got a drunk Jesus playing Jesus in this silent movie. And that's exactly what DeMille did not want. 
And guys, when I read this story uh, over my break, I got to tell you, I thought to myself, in my 25 years of being a pastor, I have seen that precise scenario play itself out hundreds of times in the lives of well-meaning Christ followers. Uh, We surround our lives with a bunch of religious and moral rules. As we're going to see, some of them good and right and right from the Bible, and some of them not, but rules nonetheless. And we convince ourselves that they alone will keep us on the straight and narrow, that they alone will be the guardrails of our Christian life and lead us to Jesus only to have the opposite effect happen as we fall big time and then fail and wonder what happened to our faith. It's Sunamita's story that we heard earlier, a wonderful and devout Christian home complete with highly focused parents and a good Bible-believing church. But before you know it, and sometimes with even out, without even knowing it, the rules become the focus, grace gets eclipsed, and here's what befuddles me, it's faith that then suffers. When you think about it, who would have imagined that rules and regulations, even the good ones, could actually become a detriment to one's faith? And if this is true, the question I want you to wrestle with now is what does this mean then for you and I? I mean, does it mean that rules are bad? I hope not, because that's not what I'm going to suggest today. But if that's not what we're saying, then what role do they play in our lives and in our walk with God, and how does all of this fit together? What do we need to be aware of, and what do we need to not be aware of? That's what I want us to explore today as we begin this series on doubt. Christians call it legalism, but I'm not sure that Christians could define legalism very well. I hear them throw the term around a lot, but then when I say, give me a good technical definition of legalism, which I'm going to give you in a minute, I don't usually get one. So I want to settle this issue today on exactly what this is and then why it is dangerous and what we need to be aware of. And to do this, I'm going to do three things in our short time remaining before we go to the table. I'm going to give you our main point right up front, just so that we're all on the same page. Then we're going to allow Jesus in John chapter 5 to teach us about legalism, what it is, and why it's so dangerous. And then we're going to end on a glorious note with a call to live a life of relationality and faith in God that's all built upon His grace. So, here's our main point today. And it's very important that you and I wrestle with this. And it's this, that when rules trump relationship, by the way, with God or anybody else in your sphere of influence, your wife, your kids, your coworker, your neighbor, your friends, when rules trump relationship, faith becomes threatened and doubt sets in. I'm telling you, most people don't see this. They don't see the connection, but you're going to see it today. It's true that when we allow rules to come before relationship in all spheres of our life, but particularly with God, we don't realize how much of a threat this is to our faith and what an open door it is to doubt. So what do we mean by this and how does this work? If you brought a Bible with you today, I need you to open to John chapter 5, and we're going to look at the first 18 verses today. And as I mentioned earlier, in the first four chapters of John, it's all about belief. Jesus is on the scene, uh, kind of like having a new baby. Everybody's all excited, and, and they can't wait, and, and, and things are happening, and the Son of God is here, and they're hailing Him as the Messiah, the one who can deliver us from our sins, even though they don't completely know what that means, but they're excited nonetheless. And then as we turn the page into chapter 5, I'm telling you, it's like a switch. Things begin to change. The religious leaders are going to doubt 
Jesus. And some of the crowds are going to follow, and they're even going to try to come after him, and they will as a result. So let's read about what happens. Let's read John chapter 5, the first 10 verses, then we'll talk about it and then read the others as we wrap up here shortly. John 5 verses 1 through 10. It says, after this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades, and in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Now, one of the cool things about this passage here is that John has given us enough detail that we can put together historically a lot about this setting. In fact, we know today, modern day, where this setting took place, and we've unearthed it uh, over in Jerusalem. You'll notice that it says that this is now taking place in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate, which was obviously a gate into the sheep market where they herded and sold sheep. And by this gate was a pool called Bethesda. And tradition is pretty solid that this gate and pool is in the northwest corner of Jerusalem where a church currently stands right now called the Church of St. Anne. And excavations over the years have been done that have unearthed this pool, and here's a picture of it right here. I've been there. In fact, I, I remember standing in just about this spot looking down on the pool. We're looking down into it uh, in this precise way. This is not a picture I took, but I can remember it in my mind's eye. And so you'll see the rectangular pool here and the old foundation that formed the colonnades. And then you'll see another pool over here. There were, there were two pools here. I remember the first time I saw this, I thought it looks like a Scottsdale swimming pool, if you ask me. You got the pool here and the hot tub right here. And so I, I'm, I know I think like that. You know, we thought we invented that, but really the Greeks and Romans beat us to that. And so picture uh, all the people around this pool here. And verse 4 that is omitted in the ESV translation because it didn't appear to about 400 AD. It was almost certainly put in after the Gospel of John was written. So it's included as a footnote in, John, in the ESV translation. Verse 4 tells us that what was happening is that as the waters were stirred by an angel of God, the first person who needed a miracle to get in the water, that person would receive his or her healing. But only the first person. And so that's the setting that Jesus walks into here. And obviously, there's a guy who'd been trying to be the first person to get into the water for 38 years. I would submit to you that's a long time. He couldn't walk. For 38 years, we don't know why he was lame or whatever, he just, he couldn't walk, paralyzed. And so with atrophied muscles and, and, and with, uh, out of wheelchair, because they didn't have those back then, and with no quality of life to speak of, this guy, day after day, month after month, year after year, 
was trying to be the first one to get into the pool, and he couldn't. And so Jesus walks in, sees this scene. Now, now watch this. He does something that he almost never does. And that is without any call to faith, without any really hardly preamble or discussion at all, he simply asks the guy, do you want to be healed? Which the guy doesn't answer directly. All he does is whine about how he's not been able to get into the water. Jesus then heals the guy right on the spot by saying, get up, take up your mat, and walk. And verse 9 is key when it says that this man at once was healed and took up his bed and walked. Guys, I've taught you before that the definition of a miracle is that it has to supersede natural law, and it has to be immediate, instantaneous, and complete. And this fits the bill. This guy was completely healed right there on the spot from his infirmity. Now, I shared with you <coughs> just a second ago that this is a rather unique miracle of Jesus because he didn't call this man to faith. You need to know that almost every other miracle Jesus did, he would first interact with the person and talk about their spiritual life and call them to a life of faith and trust. And the miracle kind of underlined that for that person as well as for the crowds. But what makes this unique is that Jesus didn't do that. So we have to ask the question, what is going on here? And why did Jesus perform this miracle in the first place? I mean, it did provide some physical comfort for this guy, obviously, but he didn't call him to faith like he did in so many other miracles. So what is Jesus trying to get across here? And as you're thinking about that, wrestle with something else as well that I think is also significant, and that is why did Jesus specifically say to him, get up, take up your bed, picture kind of a mat that he was lying on, and walk? I mean, why didn't Jesus simply say, hey, I've healed you when you think about it and want to get up and be on your way? And why didn't he even just say, hey, get up and walk? Why did he include, get up, take up your bed and walk? I mean, would the guy forget to do something like that? I don't think so. I think Jesus was up to something here that we need to honor, and it's found in verses 9 and 10. Let's look at it one last time. It says, John's editorializing now by the power of the Holy Spirit, it says, now that day was the Sabbath, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Now, let me ask you an obvious lead-in question. How many of you think Jesus knew it was the Sabbath? Raise your hand. Uh, yeah, he was Jewish. He was the Son of God. How many of you think Jesus even knew the fourth commandment that says you shall rest on the Sabbath, and even the other things, the way the Jews had lived out that commandment. How do you think Jesus would have, would have known that? How many of you think? Uh, of course he would have. I, I mean, he was the Son of God. He knew all things, and he was raised Jewish. So Jesus knew exactly what he was doing uh, during this miracle here, and I think he did it for a purpose. Let, let's see the backdrop first. Here's what was going on when Jesus healed on the Sabbath and told this guy to take up your mat and walk. Uh, Deuteronomy 5, verses 12 through 15 is the actual commandment. It's the fourth commandment of the Big Ten, and it says that on six days you shall work, on the seventh day you shall rest. You guys need to go to Sunday school again. On the seventh day you shall rest. And that's the commandment. And then it even goes on to say, you know, your maid servants, your man servants, your oxen, everything needs to rest. But like churches do today, now isn't this just rich? They don't just leave the commandment alone and let people apply it as God leads them to. 
they have a lot of pastors and leaders who feel that they need to add to it and tell you exactly how you need to live it out. You ever been in a church like that? And what happened was, is that from the time this commandment came to the time of Jesus, there was an oral tradition of the rabbis and the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees that eventually would be codified in 200 AD, written down, called the Talmud and particularly the Mishnah, in which, get this, they added like hundreds of rules to the Ten Commandments and the other rules in the Old Testament. Hundreds of different ways that good Jews would live this out. And when it came to the Sabbath rest, they had a lot of rules added to it. And on that particular day, what Jesus did is that he broke two of them. And I'm going to submit to you that he knew exactly what he was doing. What are the two that he broke? The first one that he broke is that they said, based on the commandment to rest, you should never heal on the Sabbath that it would be wrong to heal somebody on the Sabbath. And they had tons of laws on that. To show you how specific it is, here's one law found in the Mishnah, and I'm going to quote it to you directly. A man may not put vinegar on his teeth to alleviate toothache on the Sabbath, but he may take vinegar in the ordinary course of a meal, and if he is healed, then he is healed. Wow, that's pretty specific, right? So you couldn't actually apply it there because that would be work. But if it happened to be in the food, you know, you dosed a little food with it, well, then that's okay. And Jesus was obviously healing on the Sabbath here, and that broke their application, their rule added to resting on the seventh day. Uh, But that wasn't the only one. Uh, There are 39 classes of work forbidden on the Sabbath. They thought about this stuff. 39 uh, forms of work you couldn't do on the Sabbath. The 39th reads like this. You shall not take anything from one domain into another. So it's simply saying that if I wanted to move this stool from this side of the stage to the other on the Sabbath, (laughs) which I just did, uh, you're not allowed to do because that would be considered work. So let me ask you, maybe now you're starting to see, do you think Jesus knew what he was doing when he said to this guy, get up, take up your mat or bed and walk? Do you think he knew what he was doing? I think Jesus knew exactly that he was going against their man-made rule built upon the Sabbath. You see, Jesus knew the rule-centered nature of the Pharisees and the scribes' faith. He knew that their religious expression had become very legalistic, centered around rules and regulations more than the more precious things like faith and love. And so he intentionally does what he does here. Please see this. This is core to the story to bring this all to the forefront and call them on it. In short, I believe Jesus does this miracle for the primary purpose to expose their legalism. And so now let's talk about what legalism is because Jesus has now brought it to the forefront. You see, I would suggest to you that legalism is any time that you and I elevate a rule, whether it's a good biblical rule like Sabbath keeping or a petty non-biblical rule like found in the Mishnah and in many churches today, it's when we elevate a rule above and before relationship, in this case, with God. Uh, Paul Miller, in his wonderful little book entitled Love Walked Among Us, defines legalism this way. He says, legalism takes a good rule, such as rest one day a week, and creates a rigid system that forgets about people. And I would say even forgets about God. And it's very, very subtle, because we don't mean to do that. It's not like we're trying to mess everything up. 
It's not like we're trying to be mean to our spouse or our kids or even God. We think we're doing the right thing, but the reality is, is that we've put rules before relationship. We put what we do before who God is and our trust in Him and our love for others. Maybe look at it this way. Uh, legalism takes the natural order of a relationship that does need to be governed by some boundaries, like not swearing at people or hitting them or being constantly late or disrespectful, and it inverts this order, and it places the rules even before the relationship. Politeness before personhood. The cart before the horse. <laughs> That's what legalism does. And so as I explain it this way, and I want to be very clear in this, hopefully you can hear me saying that we are not saying that rules are bad and that they have no place in our lives. If some of you send me an email this week saying, Pastor Jamie doesn't believe we should have rules, you're not hearing me. I think we should have rules, and I believe they are necessary and good. And by the way, the Bible has a lot of them. I love it when people say to me, the Bible's not a bunch of do's and don'ts. And I go, well, have you read it? I mean, you're right. It's not just do's and don'ts, but there's an awful lot of them in the Bible, just like there would be in any good family. And we need them to guide and direct us. But here's the deal. When the rules rule the day and become the core expression of our lives, when they're somehow used to prove our worth to be loved, when they become a substitute for grace and relationality, which need to come first, we are then on dangerous ground with both God and others around us. And the reason is because this will invariably lead to legalism and at best the deadening of our faith and at worst major doubt and even the loss of our faith. This is really important for us to see. We're going to transition now to the dangers of legalism and why it's so important that we get this relationship rules order right when it comes to God. I want to look at our account one last time, and let's finish it here in verses 11 through 18, because you're going to see Jesus in his interaction with the Jewish leaders now show us why legalism is so dangerous. So let's read these verses. It says, but he, this now talking about the guy who used to be paralyzed or lame, he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. So they, the Jewish leaders, asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Uh, now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in the place. After Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Read there, going, uh, not playing their legalistic game. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. And this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, there's a lot going on in this passage here, guys. But what I simply need you to see, because we have just a few moments left here, is the profound link 
that John goes to great lengths to help us see here between Jesus not playing their religious rule-centered game and thus exposing their legalism through this miracle, link that with the doubts. The very first time in the Gospel of John, the doubts that begin to set in as a result. Verse 16, which I underlined, couldn't be more clear. This is why. John tells us the Jews are persecuting Jesus. Why? Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So because Jesus wouldn't join them in their legalistic approach to religion and God, they doubted that he could really be from God. Don't miss that. The potential faith in Jesus that these Jewish leaders could have had became deeply threatened because they insisted on a rule-centered approach, prove yourself by measuring up to God. And I find that very interesting because at the very least, what this teaches us is this, and this is rich, and that is that faith and legalism hardly ever can go together. And that should scare the heaven out of some of us (laughs) because we're awfully legalistic today and we wonder why our faith suffers. I'm a big football fan. Can't wait for football season to start. And I'm telling you, faith and legalism are like two football teams on the same field, and all they do is battle each other. And one of them is going to win. That's what Jesus is teaching us here. You see, legalism says, I will prove to you my worth by what I do. I will earn your approval by keeping the rules. I will measure up by being good. That's what legalism says. But you know what faith says? And I hope you see, hopefully you can see the antithesis right now. Faith says, I'm a train wreck and I need some grace. I want to do good and I want to live an honorable life. But compared to you, God, I can't and I need some help. In fact, I need love and relationality just in order to understand your rules, God, let alone live them. And guys, this is why Jesus exposes the Pharisees' legalism. And this is why they respond with doubt. Because when a rule-centered approach to God is winning the day, over time, I promise you, disillusionment will set in and begin to erode any kind of love and even faith that you have. I mentioned earlier, I've been a Christian for over 30 years and a pastor for over 25. I really do feel like I'm getting old, even though I'm still relatively young. And I got to tell you, in 25 years of being a pastor, here's what I have learned. I have never met a legalistic Christian yet who isn't tired and angry. It's true. And I spent the first 10 years of my Christianity, just so we're no, uh, a legalist. And Kim would tell you, when she first met me, I got saved in 81, Kim and I got married in 88. She would tell you, when she first met me and married me, I was an angry, tired young man. Because I was on this treadmill every day of saying that I have to prove myself to God and my wife and others all by my actions. And if anybody would ever say to me, well, we just love you for who you are, Jamie. You know what I would say? Because I knew the right theological answer. I'd say, well, I know, of course you do. But inside I would say, liar! There's no way that if you knew what I struggled with and what I think and what what I battle, that you would love me for who I am. It's one thing to say that to your wife. It's another thing to say that to God and his son Jesus who died for you and knows everything about you. And that's why so much is at stake with this stuff, guys, because Jesus here is trying to tell us the danger of legalism is that it erodes faith. It prioritizes rules over relationality 
And at the end of the day, it's bound to create doubts because you're going to get so tired of being on that treadmill that eventually you're going to get mad and say, well, if God's that way, and he's not, by the way, but you've convinced yourself he is. If God's that way, I want nothing to do with him. One last look at the text here, because Jesus turns this whole thing positive and does an amazing thing here. I don't know if you caught it or not, but Jesus only has one answer to the Pharisees in all of this. It's amazing. He only says, what, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, only ten words in response to all of this scenario. And this is what he says in verse 17. It says, but Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working I love it too, Mary. A lot of people are confused by this verse. They go, well, what's Jesus trying to get at here? It's really not complicated. I think he's doing two things in this context. The first thing he's saying here in more of a subtle way, but it's, I think it was not lost on the Pharisees, is he's saying, look, uh, my father works seven days a week in this way to heal, to comfort, to reveal uh, all of those things. He's been working ever since the beginning of creation, and that kind of work does not break the Sabbath commandment. It breaks your petty little additions to the Sabbath commandment, like thou shalt not heal, and you can't take something from one domain to another, but it, it doesn't break the Sabbath. Because the work that the Father and I do is holy work to bring God to other people, and that can't break the Sabbath commandment to rest. That's, that's the first thing Jesus is saying here. But he also says something else that really ticks the Pharisees off and leads them into doubt. And it's such an intimate, beautiful thing that Jesus doesn't do very often. He refers to God, his father, did you catch it, as my father. Small little word, my father. I like how Leon Morris in his commentary says it. I think he nails it. Morris says this. He says, Jesus's defense rests on his intimate relationship to the father. Try not to miss this. In the backdrop of the Pharisees arguing that it's all about rules, Jesus says, no, this is my father we're talking about. And for all of eternity, I've related to him as my father. And I'm in intimate relationship with him. Now watch this. And from that relationship, Jesus will go on to say, I do everything he says. I am fully and perfectly obedient. So again, we're not throwing rules out the door here. Rules come into play. Obedience comes into play. But it's on the coattails of relationship. That's what Jesus is teaching us here. And the whole gospel of John will be Jesus trying to say to us, now that's the way you're to function. I invite you into the joy of the Trinity with me to begin with relationality, faith, love, talking to God every day, praying to him, receiving his grace first and foremost, because you really are a mess, more so than you think. And then from that... Let's try to get things right. From that, let's start to work on those rough edges of your life. Let's start to develop obedience and rules still will come into play. But they're not running the day. Grace and relationality are running the day. Guys, I'm telling you, it's relationality trumping rules. That's what Jesus does here. Not relationality replacing rules, but coming before it. And if you miss that, you're going to miss the whole thing that Jesus is trying to get at. 
I want to close uh, with an illustration here. We have just a couple of minutes that I uh, got of all places uh, off the Gospel Coalition blog. I, I read a lot of blogs because they're, they're fun and, and they help educate me. And uh, there's a pastor who's actually a second generation pastor by the name of Ray Ortland. His dad was a pastor and uh, his son's a, a good conservative Bible-believing pastor and, and on the board of the Gospel Coalition, which is a very conservative kind of think tank and coalition of Christian churches. And uh, on his blog in April, he wrote a fictitious story that I thought was really poignant, if not hard-hitting, and it was entitled, Are You Married to Mr. Law or Mr. Grace? Let me read it for you, and then we'll go to the table. He says, we used to be married to Mr. Law. He was a good man in his way, but he didn't understand our weaknesses. He came home every evening and asked, so how was your day, honey? Did you do what I told you to do? Did you make the kids behave? Did you waste any time? Did you complete everything I put on your to-do list? There were so many demands and expectations from Mr. Law. And as hard as we tried, we couldn't be perfect. We could never satisfy him. We forgot things that were important to him. We let the children misbehave. We failed in other ways. It was a miserable marriage because Mr. Law always pointed out our failings. And the worst of it was, he was always right. His remedy was always the same, however, do better tomorrow, and we didn't because we couldn't. Orland goes on to say, then Mr. Law died, and we remarried, this time to Mr. Grace. Our new husband, Jesus, comes home every evening, and the house is a mess. <laughs> the children are being naughty, dinner is burning on the stove, and we even have had other men in the house during the day. Still, he sweeps us into his arms and says, I love you. I chose you and I died for you and I will never leave you nor forsake you. And our hearts melt. We don't understand such love. We expect him rightly so to despise us and reject us and humiliate us, but he treats us so well. We are so glad to belong to him now and forever. And now we long to be fully pleasing to him. He wraps up by saying being married to Mr. Law never changed us, but being married to Mr. Grace is changing us deep within. And it shows. Some of you here today need to commit to only one thing today. You need to commit to being on a journey of a revolution of grace in your life. Like Sunamita and Matt are on right now. We're so proud of them as some of our younger staff. You need to start to analyze or audit the, the, the spiritual world you've been involved in that's more about rules than anything else. It's this treadmill of fear and having to prove yourself to God and all this stuff. And, and you need to get to the point. Just make a decision today. Nothing else. That's all I'm asking you is just say, God, I want more grace. <laughs> God, I want you. He'll meet you in that place. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the call that you give us today through this amazing story as we turn the corner in the Gospel of John where Jesus exposes so much of the religious substructure in the culture at that time that I believe still is alive and well today that, that focuses more on performance and behavior and even good performance and behavior to the exclusion, God, as Jesus would go on to teach to the good things like love and justice and faith. And Father, I pray that as we've just kind of scratched the surface on that today, that God, you might make some of us more thirsty for grace. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longeth after thee. God, may you make us thirsty. And, and as Lewis taught us in that thirst, may we begin to find joy. And may we begin to find you. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.